Hello, and welcome to the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD. Hi, and welcome to another episode of this podcast. I'm Dr. Tish Taylor, a licensed clinical child and adolescent psychologist. I will be talking today on disruptive behavior disorders and ADHD. The goal of today's podcast is to give you some more information on disruptive behavior disorders, how they interact with ADHD, as well as common interventions that are used and resources. So let's start with common co-occurring disruptive behavior disorders and ADHD. And so many of these disruptive behavior disorders I will be talking about, generally speaking, occur roughly two, three, four percent of the time within the population. However, the co-occurrence rates with ADHD are often higher. For example, oppositional defiant disorder is a very common co-occurrence with ADHD. We see that in probably approximately 3% of the population, but in the ADHD population, we see it much higher. So it tends to run about within about 50% of the ADHD population, especially combined type or hyperactive impulsive type, and in about 25% of inattentive type ADHD. And I can tell you within my clinical practice, even if I don't diagnose a child with comorbid ODD with ADHD, I often see some of those behaviors that pop up. So they may not robustly meet the diagnostic criteria, but they may show some of those behaviors. So oftentimes with ADHD, I would say in a clinical practice, oftentimes with ADHD combined type or hyperactive impulsive type, and even in attentive type, we still are dealing with some of those behaviors. Another co-occurring behavior that often happens with ADHD is conduct disorder, not to the degree that oppositional defiant disorder occurs, but conduct disorder does show up. Another type of disruptive behavior disorder is intermittent explosive disorder, and that shows up in roughly 2 to 3% of the population, not quite as often as oppositional defiant disorder does, but it does occur. And in a minute, I'm going to describe some of the differences of these disruptive behavior disorders. I also do want to give a nod to disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. Now, that is classified within mood disorders and not disruptive behavior disorders, but it does feel like and show up like a disruptive behavior disorder in many ways. However, we recognize it clinically as a mood disorder that is influencing the behaviors. So let me go back and describe some of the specific behaviors and the presentations, profiles you will see within these disruptive behavior disorders. So oppositional defiant disorder looks like and sounds like the child or teen who just doesn't want to agree. They often disagree, argue, refuse to follow rules or expectations. They can tend to be revengeful in some situations. They tend to be irritable. They can be more easily annoyed or purposely annoy others. And this tends to show up depending on how severe the disorder is. So in a milder case, it may show up just at home. In a more moderate case, it may show up at home in school. And in the more severe cases, we're seeing it very persistently across the board in different settings. And so there's very little self-regulation and self-control when you see the more severe cases. Now, in terms of gender, It does happen a little more often in males. 
in childhood, I think the rate's 1.6 to 1 in terms of ratio male to female. However, into adolescence, those distinctions become more blurred. With conduct disorder, you you often see oppositional defiant disorder in conjunction with it, but conduct disorder is more purposely and intentionally rule-breaking, not showing a lot of, I would say, empathy, care, or concern for how somebody else may be affected, manipulated, or hurt, or that also includes property. It can include property and people and animals. So this is the child or adolescent who is skipping school or willing to try different drugs or willing to break laws or steal things or manipulate people in different ways to get what they want. And one historical and continued concern with conduct disorder is lack of empathy. Intermittent explosive disorder is a behavioral disorder where we see just a huge emotional and behavioral reaction to usually some kind of trigger, something that upsets the child or teen that their reaction is beyond or well beyond what most people would expect the reaction to be. So the reaction itself tends to be a tantrum, a meltdown, How, if you want to define it that way. It might be yelling. It's typically aggressive verbally and physically, but just a huge reaction. And then that recovery period, depending on the child or the teen, can be a long recovery period or a quicker recovery period. But typically what I see is their recognition of how it affects other people in the situation is not very high. And so not recognizing then how other people around them need to recover and then subsequently respond to them. I want to go back and make a comment about disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, as I mentioned before. Again, it's classified within the category of mood disorders, but it shows up and looks a lot like oppositional defiant disorder in some ways. It can look like intermittent explosive disorder in some ways. But really the hallmark trait and characteristic you're looking for clinically is if there's a persistent and irritable mood. So when there's a persistent and irritable mood, you're naturally going to see quicker blowups, bigger reactions to smaller things. People are often walking on eggshells around a child with disruptive mood dysregulation disorder because they're frequently irritable and easily agitated. And sometimes you don't know what's going to make them have a large reaction to something. Sometimes triggers are pretty easily identifiable, a demand or a request that they don't want to do or a transition to an activity they don't want to do. But sometimes we can't always predict it. And so adults and other people find themselves walking on eggshells in that situation. Let's move into interventions. These situations are certainly not hopeless. There are things we can do. I think one of the most important things when we're talking about disruptive behavior disorders, and especially when they're comorbid with other disorders such as ADHD, what we need to first do is make sure we're doing things that are systematic and that we're implementing them with integrity. So when we implement interventions with integrity, we're trying to implement them as consistently as possible And we're trying to implement them as purely as possible. I think that's the best word I can think of. Not trying to deviate too much or water it down too much. So for example, if you're implementing a behavior intervention plan that has a specific target goal, a target behavior, a behavior we're trying to replace or change, then as consistently as possible, you need to reinforce that behavior or provide the consequence that you've determined, predetermined the consequence to be. 
For example, if you're implementing a behavior plan where the child is, the goal of the target behavior is to have a time away or a time out before they become aggressive or before they yell at somebody or before they throw something across the room, then when you see them implementing a behavior trying to do that, they're huffing and puffing, but they're not throwing anything, then that's a time to give some reinforcement, some gentle reinforcement or add a point to their point system. If indeed, though, they're not able to do that and they do have an explosion and it does cause negative reactions from other people and it causes some disruption in the home or school, then the predetermined consequence needs to occur. And maybe that is a time away. Maybe that they lose points. Maybe they need to go take a time out in a whole nother space. When they're calm, they probably need to come back and apologize and somehow make up for something they broke or destroyed and come back and make some, do some reparation as appropriate. At times as adults, we become worn out, stressed out, but we cannot allow that to stop us from implementing the plan with integrity. Because if the child does not get the consistent feedback or the consistent consequences, it becomes less predictable for them. And with disruptive behavior disorders, predictability, structure, consistency is very important. And that's a lot of what I mean by implementing it with integrity. Another helpful and efficacious intervention, especially for oppositional defiant disorder, is parent-child interaction therapy. So many of you may have heard that or may have some experience with that. That particular intervention was developed for young children, roughly ages two to seven. So it definitely requires parent or parents, as well as the child to be involved with the therapy. But that therapy in particular works on particular parent and child interaction skills in moments of doing an activity. So there is coaching that occurs with the parent from the clinician, and then there are certainly skills to work on in the home setting. So commonly referred to as PCIT, you can often find those resources locally or some clinicians locally, especially in larger cities. And you can probably find some resources online if you're not finding them in your local area. There are also books available where you can Google or search PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy, but those can certainly be helpful interventions for younger children and parents. Other important interventions that would be behavioral therapy. Behavioral therapy can be efficacious for ADHD. It also is an important component for other disruptive behavior disorders. And so again, you can find local clinicians typically, book resources on behavior therapy, chad.org, would also have helpful resources. Behavioral therapy will help a parent or clinician specifically address and identify particular behaviors that need to be targeted, antecedents and consequences to those behaviors. So trying to understand the behavioral patterns, the behavioral triggers, and what replacement responses or consequences we can have as adults interfere with those patterns of behaviors the child is showing. So ultimately, we're trying to really understand on a micro level how those behavioral patterns are playing out and how we can interrupt them, replace them, and improve them. Cognitive behavior therapy is typically delivered through an individual therapist or counselor. And so commonly referred to as CBT, cognitive behavior therapy is certainly efficacious with although I haven't mentioned anxiety, it's certainly efficacious with anxiety because while I haven't mentioned that in this disruptive behavior disorder piece, 
it often does co-occur with what we are speaking about. So it certainly is efficacious with aspects of anxiety, which can increase behaviors, by the way, but it's also very efficacious with anger and frustration because it breaks down the thought patterns, the emotions, and the actions, how those all work together and come together within a situation or a moment where a person reacts with high emotion or strong emotion. So it helps the person or the child, the teen, the parent even better understand what those patterns are, how they're coming together for the child. And it's trying to give the child or teen additional skills in terms of their thinking and responses. When we see disruptive behavior patterns that are more moderate to severe, it's really important to have a systematic approach. What I mean by that is, first of all, having supports within the home. So that can include family therapy, individual therapy for the child. It could also include a behavior specialist assisting the family or the parents with behavior therapy and managing a behavior plan, for example. And if the parents themselves need specific treatment for things that are challenging for them, that is also a very important component because when you're parenting a child with a disruptive behavior disorder, it taxes you mentally, emotionally, and physically. So if the parent needs any level of psychiatric or psychological intervention, we don't want to overlook that. In addition, recognizing some plan of self-care or how parents can have some reprieve or some respite. Because again, this takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of agency and wherewithal, and especially depending on how severe the disorder is. So those are very good examples and important things to address in the home setting. In the school setting, that requires what services and supports can be provided in the school setting. And I know that can be its own challenge in some ways. It could be special education services or general education services through a 504, but certainly individuals within the school who are working in collaboration with the family, with other outside support services, and working with other, probably other professionals within the school setting to provide a systematic support system, systematic response system to this student to allow for positive behavior supports, positive mental health supports, as well as appropriate responses and consequences to disruptive behaviors in the school setting. So essentially, this means that if it's not special education services, that there are at least mental health providers or the school counselors or school mental health professionals, school administration, and the teachers are all trying to work together to meet the positive goals for the student. So definitely the school needs to be on board. Third, resources and support through the community or private services for the child, family, or teen. So as I've mentioned before, individual therapy, family therapy, behavioral therapy, medication therapy would all be those professional types of services. It could also be coaching services, but all of those professional types of services are also important to be on board with this One other thing I would like to mention as a clinician in those moments. So I've been in those moments in therapy and working with children and teens where I get some of the behavior, I get some of the pushback, or I get some of the agitation and frustration. And so in those moments, just some tips for you all is to one, take a breath and don't respond right away. Just pause. Try not to give a facial expression, too much facial expression, or too much nonverbal reaction, like don't take a big huff or just try and remain calm and still and think before you respond. And usually in those moments, when I feel like the child or teen is able to listen, I will probably try and reflect back their feeling, try and meet them where they are and say, I can tell you're really frustrated. 
but something that really identifies what it is when I try and meet them where they are with a calm presence, with a non-judgmental kind of presence. I'm trying to help them start to recover and communicate what's going on inside of them because usually they're not able to communicate it effectively. And I'm trying to get them on a path where they can do that because once they can do that, we're typically more on the road to recovery and problem solving. I have to do it in their time, but I try and be that presence there that allows them to do it in their time where they're not going to feel judged or further triggered. So hopefully that gives you a few tips and that helps. Lastly, I want to mention some resources that would be helpful. So I already mentioned PCIT. If many of you have heard of Ross Green, but he has terrific ideas and information for this population in regards to his book, The Explosive Child, which is very well known, but also he's written the collaborative problem solving model. That's very helpful for clinicians because it really breaks down how to use those skills he talks about in The Explosive Child. I really like the whole brain child that Dan Siegel has written is very informative in terms of how a child's brain works, actually how our brains work, but especially how a child's brain works when they're overwhelmed or overstimulated or they don't have much left but just to blow up or explode. So that's also a very helpful read. Russell Barkley and Alan Kasdan, of course, provide very helpful information in terms of behavioral therapies and strategies. I would also, chad.org, of course, provides lots of information and resources for you. Lastly, I would say if you want to go to my website, which is tishtaylor.com, I have written a, a recent book called Fostering Connection and where I've really tried to highlight some specific skills related to social and emotional intelligence for kiddos or children and teens with disruptive behavior disorders. So you might find that as a helpful resource as well. So thank you for listening today and all the best to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD.